This podcast is intended for healthcare professionals. The information presented is for general educational purposes only and should not be used as professional medical advice or for the diagnosis or treatment of medical conditions. The views and opinions expressed do not represent the views and opinions of our employer or any affiliated institution. Expressed opinions are based on scientific facts under certain conditions and subject to certain assumptions and should not be used or relied upon for any other purpose, including but not limited to the diagnosis or treatment of medical conditions or in any legal proceeding. Full terms and conditions can be found at portablebeads.com. And now onto the episode. Howdy, and welcome to Portable Peds, the Pediatric Board Review Podcast, and welcome to our first official episode. We have a couple episodes before this about immunizations that you can listen to if you'd like to not have to wait for our weekly episodes to start starting today. So this is going to be a weekly podcast. I'll kind of talk through the format of it so you can kind of know what to expect from us going forward. Basically, we have our episodes launching every Saturday night, and then they'll be uploaded on all the podcasting platforms on Sundays, so you can listen to it throughout the week. And then on Monday through Friday on our social media platforms, specifically Twitter and Facebook, we will be reinforcing the content by talking through each answer choice about the high-yield takeaways and bullet points you need to know about it. And you'll kind of know what I mean whenever we talk about this question and the answer choices. So each episode will be case-based, where we have a question stem, and then five answer choices, and we will have one correct answer, and then four incorrect answers, and we'll talk about what makes the right answer right and the wrong answers wrong, and kind of the high-yield takeaways, as this is a board-specific-focused studying podcast. We also have a website, portablepeds.com, and you can email us at portablepeds at gmail.com if you have any ideas about things you'd like us to cover in the future. But without further ado, let's jump right into it. With me today is Sam DeMarsh. Hi, guys. I'm excited to have our first question. And she will be one of our recurring co-hosts. And I don't think I introduced myself. I'm Ryan. Nice to meet you guys. All right, let's jump straight into it. All right, so our first question is, a nine-day-old male born at 36 weeks gestation via normal spontaneous vaginal delivery presents to a pediatric emergency room due to increased fussiness, fever, and decreased oral intake. Maternal perinatal history is unremarkable aside from a mild flu-like illness in her first trimester and for preterm labor. The mother had negative serologies at delivery and no history of sexually transmitted infections. Her delivery was uncomplicated, although the placenta was noted to have the presence of white nodules and the infant did not require NICU admission. A full septic evaluation was performed with a serum glucose of 80, serum white blood cell count of 18.1 with a neutrophilic predominance and CSF analysis showing white blood cells at 20,000, glucose at 25, and protein at 125. Blood, CSF, and urine cultures are still pending. What is the most likely diagnosis and the recommended empiric treatment? And our answer choices are as followed. Answer choice A, herpes simplex meningitis, being treated with acyclovir, ampicillin, and gentamicin. Answer choice B is appropriately group B strep meningitis, treated with ampicillin, ceftriaxone, and gentamicin. Answer choice C is Listeria monocytogenes meningitis, treated with ampicillin and gentamicin. Answer choice D is E. coli meningitis, treated with ampicillin and gentamicin. And answer choice E is Neisseria meningitidis meningitis, being treated with ampicillin, ceftriaxone, and gentamicin. So take a second, think about which answer you think is the correct one, 
We'll give you a few seconds and then we'll jump into each answer choice explaining why or why not it is the correct answer. All right, so let's jump into this. So the first answer choice, A, uh, herpes simplex meningitis being treated with acyclovir, AMP, and Gent. Uh, this answer is incorrect, uh, specifically because the CSF constituents and ratios are inconsistent with a viral illness. So typically, if a meningitis is virally mediated, the CSF will show less than 100 whites per millimeter cubed, with a predominance of lymphocytes, although if caught early, PMNs may predominate. There will also likely be normal to elevated protein as opposed to typical mild to marked elevation in bacterial meningitis and a normal CSF to serum glucose ratio as opposed to being markedly decreased with bacterial meningitis. HSV should strongly be considered when there is a maternal history of infection or there is visualization of cutaneous lesions, especially when they have the classic vesicular appearance. Many times these babies will present with apnea or seizures as well, and it's common to obtain surface and serologic testing in addition to rapid CSF panels with HSV included. And when covering with empiric antibiotics, initiate acyclovir treatment for viral coverage, then discontinue once there's evidence of negativity on testing. After the infant's greater than 28 days of life, the risk of HSV drops precipitously, and the acyclovir should only be used if there are specific concerns. For our answer choice B, Group B strep meningitis being treated with ampicillin, ceftriaxone, and gentamicin, that is also an incorrect answer. So while it's true that empiric antibiotic therapy for a febrile neonate typically does include ampicillin, gentamicin, and acyclovir, answer choice B is incorrect for two reasons. The first is that group B strep, commonly referred to as GBS, is not the most likely etiology of meningitis given that the baby is not at nine days of life and the report of flu-like illness during the prenatal period is highly suspicious of another infection listed in the answer choices. Additionally, the treatment course of a neonatal GBS meningitis would be with ampicillin and cefotaxime for 14 days and would not include ceftriaxone. Ceftriaxone is actually not used until an infant is over one month old. Research studies state that Ceftriaxone is contraindicated in neonates because it displaces bilirubin from albumin binding sites, which results in higher free bilirubin serum concentrations with subsequent accumulation of bilirubin in the tissues. Even more dangerous is ceftriaxone's interaction with calcium. This interaction precipitates calcium, which results in serious adverse effects. The references for this literature is in the show notes. All right, so now we're getting to the right answer. So Listeria monocytogenes meningitis treated with AMP and GENT is the correct answer for this question. So specifically in this case, there are a couple clues leading you towards listeria, specifically the presence of flu-like symptoms in the prenatal period, which makes it highly suspicious for this infection, and the presence of white nodules in the placenta. These are identified on pathological review as microabscesses and are only seen with listeria infections. These two pieces of information lead away from the most common diagnosis of GBS meningitis and instead trend towards the diagnosis of listeria, as both can present similarly with preterm labor and time to symptom onset after delivery. If the mother is described as being asymptomatic in pregnancy, you should think about GBS being higher on your differential, and if there's a history of being symptomatic, this may lead you more towards putting listeria higher on your differential in the appropriate clinical setting. The treatment for listeria is initially with AMP and GENT for at least a three-week course in an immunocompetent patient. If the patient is immunocompromised for any reason or has evidence of cerebritis or brain abscesses, a longer treatment duration of six to eight weeks is warranted. In the typical three to four-week treatment period, 
Gentamicin may not be required for the entire duration, and in many cases, it is only continued for the first 7 to 14 days until there is evidence of clinical improvement. At that point, ampicillin monotherapy is continued for the remainder of the treatment course, and gentamicin is discontinued to avoid precipitation of nephrotoxicity and ototoxicity as much as possible. So that leaves answer choice D as also an incorrect answer, with E. coli meningitis being treated with ampicillin and gentamicin. So with this, if I've learned nothing else in my residency, it's to have a high respect for gram-negative sepsis, especially in the neonatal population. Given the history discussed above, as well as the age of the infant presenting, E. coli is not the most likely etiology in this patient. Per the literature to date, E. coli meningitis is seven times more frequent in preterm than term infants. The median age of diagnosis is 14 days, with bimodal peaks of infection present in 70% of cases either at 0 to 3 days of life in preterm neonates or 11 to 15 days of life in term neonates. E. coli is currently the most common cause of early onset sepsis and meningitis among very low birth weight infants, essentially weighing less than 1,500 grams. In meningitis, due to gram-negative rods, including E. coli, the CSF may be cloudy and will very likely show a significant pleocytosis, in which case cephalotaxime should be added to the treatment regimen for its phenomenal CNS penetration and efficacy against these organisms. All right, and let's take us home. So the last answer choice is E, Neisseria meningitidis meningitis, being treated with ampicillin, ceftriaxone, and gentamicin. So this might be a tempting answer choice, as the CSF analysis fits with the bacterial meningitis picture specifically with the presence of pleocytosis, with a predominance of neutrophils, typically 100 to 50,000, low CSF glucose, with a ratio of CSF to serum glucose less than 0.4. Additionally, bacterial meningitis CSF profiles typically have significantly increased protein compared to viral and a positive gram stain in culture. This answer choice is not the most likely answer choice solely due to the age of the child in addition to the clues given for Listeria monocytogenes as the most likely causative agent. The prevalence of organisms causing bacterial meningitis significantly changes after the first month of life. So after the first month, we start worrying more about Neisseria meningitidis, Strep pneumo, and Haemophilus influenza B, especially if they're unimmunized, much more than the bacteria we previously discussed, such as Group B Strep, E. coli, Listeria monocytogenes, and one not mentioned in the answer choice is specifically Klebsiella. Given this shift in causative agents after a month of life, empiric antibiotics additionally change, specifically stopping the use of gentamicin and instead starting ceftriaxone and vancomycin instead. You would also consider ampicillin if the patient is immunocompromised. It's additionally important to note that the blood-brain barrier is still underdeveloped even at a month of age, and a blood culture can be positive in the majority of cases of bacterial meningitis, harboring the need for lumbar puncture in that population. Awesome. Well, that's it for our first episode of Portable Peds. If you'd like to review the content from this episode, please feel free to follow us on Twitter or Facebook, both at Portable Peds, where we'll make daily posts going over the high-yield takeaways from each answer choice. You can also visit our website, portablepeds.com, for a written version of all of our content. We would also like to give a huge thank you to Zach Goldman for designing our wonderful artwork. Thank you so much for tuning in, and we'll see you next time. Thanks, guys. Bye, guys. Boom, nailed it.